to Philippians chapter 3, no, chapter 1, sorry. Don't ask me why, I thought we were in 3. Sabine, can you bring me down just a, a hair? So Philippians chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible with you today, there you can find one in the uh, chair in front of you, the seat back in front of you, and um, you will find one in our translation that we're using today. I want to ask you this question. What attitude should you have in bad circumstances? Some of you have gone through some very difficult things in your life, and you've had bad things happen to you. What attitude should you have in bad circumstances? I'm going to tell you a fictitious story that I made up. So Psychology Today sits down with the Apostle Paul. And, he get, and they want to give him five key steps to a better attitude. Have you ever seen those articles, five steps to a happier you, or five steps to happiness or to joy? So they're going to tell the Apostle Paul not to be such a downer. So they say, Paul, just put it into perspective, man. Will it really matter in a year from now? Paul looks at them and says, well, I'm likely to be martyred in a year from now. They say, well, well, Paul, um, you just need to accept it. Mentally transition from plan A to plan B. Paul looks at them. He's shackled in prison in Rome, waiting to see Caesar. And Caesar will decide whether to execute him or to let him live. He's like, I wonder what plan B could possibly be. Well, Paul... Just be flexible. You know, look for your best next option, your next best option. What's the next thing that could possibly go well for you? Yet Paul is sitting in prison looking at these people like, what are you talking about? Finally, they say, well, Paul, don't beat yourself up about this. There are lessons you can learn from this. Paul's looking at them. Lessons I can learn from being beaten, shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, stoned to death. What lessons can I learn from this? Psychology Today finally says, well, Paul, what can you gain from your attitude? Just don't dwell on your circumstances. The Apostle Paul, sitting in prison, don't dwell on my circumstances. Who are these people? And so finally, Paul decides to reply, and he says this, I want you to know what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. You see that Paul does not waste his suffering, and God does not waste Paul's suffering. So let's follow the Bible and not pop psychology when it comes to suffering. Let's read it. go ahead and read our passage today. So we are in Philippians chapter 1. 12 through 20. And it says this. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. To be sure, some... Some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. These preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
The others proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, thinking they will cause me trouble in my imprisonment. What does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. My eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Let us pray. Almighty God, your word speaks truth. And in your word, we see Paul. Paul suffering in prison, yet he is rejoicing. Father, I pray that those who are here today who are suffering from some serious circumstances, that you would encourage them, that you would give them the mind of Paul in their circumstances, that they would be able to rejoice even when things do not go the way they would like. Father, be with me as I preach your word. Help it to be directly from you and not through any mediation of my own. Lord, I pray that your word would be um, will go and, and not return void as your word promises us. Lord, we thank you for the cross and for Christ, which teaches us how to live joyfully in all circumstances. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. So we've seen how a man finds joy in suffering, don't we? And as we study this, I think we can notice that Paul is single-minded in his service to Jesus Christ. He has one mind. He allows, the single-mindedness allows him to point to God's greater purpose, even in unpleasant circumstances. So over the last two weeks, we've talked about Paul and how he said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ, is what Paul said. Can you imagine calling yourself a slave of someone? And when we think about slavery, we're reminded of the abomination that was chattel slavery and race-based slavery in America. And we talked a lot about how in ancient times, slavery could also, also be a, a way that you gain experience. You can sell yourself into slavery, not based on race, but just on a, a changing position. Say you are an expert um, teacher, so you could sell yourself into slavery to a noble home and therefore be recognized as a better teacher of these people. So Paul says, I am a slave. And we talked about what does it mean to be a slave of Christ. And what a slave of Christ is, is someone who is swallowed up in the will of another. I wonder if that could be said about you. Are you swallowed up in the will of Jesus Christ? Is that who you are? Is that the air that you breathe? Is that your level of existence? And we see that there's more to this than just being swallowed up in the will of Christ, but it allows him to experience suffering in a way that you and I have a hard time fathoming. That Psychology Today article that I read, they would not understand Paul's attitude because it doesn't make any sense. And so Paul, so swallowed up in the will of Christ, leads his response to his circumstances. And remember his circumstances. He is in prison, now probably more under a house arrest. And just like in some countries, when you go to prison, it's not like you get three meals a day, you get to watch TV, and you get to further your education. 
No, this is prison where they throw you in a hole and, and you just hope you don't die and starve to death unless someone brings you food or you can, you maybe have a little bit of money, you can pay the guard to bring you some snacks to survive this imprisonment. So this is, this is intense. Not only that, but Paul now, as a Roman citizen, is brought to Rome, the capital city of the empire, and he has to stand before Caesar and make a case for why he believed in a man who was crucified and he claimed rose from the dead. Imagine that being your job, to convince the emperor to let you live when you're preaching false deities in their perspective. So he's preaching about Christ, which the Romans, we talked about their belief in multiple gods. And if you don't believe in the gods of Rome, you are not patriotic. And if you don't bow to these Roman gods, you are a traitor to your own country. So Paul, a Roman citizen, will have to face charges of treason. And you know how we think about people who are treasonous. We in our country do not like people who are treasonous, who betray men and women on the battlefield. And so because of Paul's chains, Christ was known. So Paul sees his circumstances as a means of glorifying God, as a way to glorify God. Let's go ahead and look at verse 12. It says, Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually advanced the gospel. This word advanced really is someone who is a, a pathfinder. When the Greeks use this word, they are using it as someone who's a trailblazer. Essentially, Paul is a cavalry scout. A cavalry scout is someone who goes in front of the main line of troops and explores routes, determines avenues of approach, figures out the best way for the army to move forward. They blaze a trail, essentially. And that is what Paul is doing with the gospel. He is forging new territory. I mean, think about this. Rome, what better mission field than Rome? The capital city where all roads lead to Rome. Have you heard that saying before? And this, this Rome is the, the area where they've built roads to, to travel to all these other countries and conquer them. And Rome is the height of fashion. Rome is where you want to go if you want to learn how to be a fashionista. That's where you go when you want to get on the cover of Elle magazine. It's the Hollywood of the time, right? It's where you go to become known. And so Paul is there and he says, look what's happened to me. I'm thrown in prison here in Rome. And Christ is known through contact with unbelievers. Look at verse 13. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to everyone else that my imprisonment is because I am in Christ. So when it says here the whole imperial guard, it could be talking directly about the, uh, the, the Roman guards, the, um, the secret service, if you will, of the Romans. And it could be talking just about them, or it could be talking about the palace and all the, the people that come to the palace to work. It would, it would be like him saying, everybody in Washington, D.C. is talking about Jesus Christ. Because of Paul's imprisonment, the whole Roman guard is talking about Jesus Christ. A Jesus Christ that they, they may not believe in, they may not have been convinced, but they're talking about him. Imagine having that perspective where I'm in prison in chains and I'm sharing the gospel with my friends, I'm having Bible studies at my home, and the Roman guard that has to stand there and watch me is listening and he's hearing the gospel. 
Do you have that perspective? So Paul says, even though I'm in prison, even though I have these chains on, even though I am restricted in my movement, the gospel is not restricted. The good news of Jesus Christ is not bound. In fact, his imprisonment gave courage, made Christ known through courage to the already saved. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers have gained confidence in the Lord from my imprisonment and dare even more to speak the word fearlessly. Courage is kind of contagious, isn't it? Courage is contagious. We see that if someone stands up for something that's right, more often than not, others too begin to stand up for what is right. And so Paul says, by me coming and being imprisoned for Christ, not recanting my faith, the other brothers in the church are also standing up, and they're also declaring the word of God with courage. Someone once, once quipped that the problem with preachers today is that no one is trying to kill them. Think about that. If I was told that I would be arrested for preaching the gospel in this church, and I came up here, you'd want to probably hear what I had to say, wouldn't you? You would be excited to see, would he go to jail or would he preach the gospel? And maybe I would be a little bit extra careful in what I am telling you. And I would make sure that it is very truthful. In fact, we see something similar, not to the same extent, but something similar in Canada. A man named James Coates, he's a pastor up there, he violated their health regulations that said that they could only have 15% capacity in their building. And he said, I can't, I can't do this. He's like, my people are committing suicide. I have members of my church who are dying and are drinking themselves to death, and they are, they're, they're, the mental health toll is more than me not having church. So he said, I'm going to have church. And they arrested him and placed him in with criminals. They just released a sex offender several days ago, but they've kept him in prison and locked down. They say that the other prisoners really love him because he is sharing the gospel with them. In fact, he's kind of a celebrity now in that prison. Imagine what it would look like to have that kind of courage. To go to prison and still share the gospel, regardless of the consequences. Paul is no stranger to chains. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 16, we see that God used Paul's imprisonment in Philippi, the church that he's writing this letter to, in order to convert somebody. In fact, if you were the jailer who is listening to this, this, this letter, imagine the smile on his face. Imagine him sitting there listening to Paul talk about the imprisonment sharing the gospel because that's how he was converted. Let's go ahead and look. Acts 16 and starting in verse 25, we hear the story about Paul being imprisoned. Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of God. Now remember the circumstances. They were preaching. Some people got mad. They got arrested. They gave them to the jailer. And this jailer is a hardened veteran of foreign wars. He's a tough dude, probably has a flat top haircut, shaved up face, and he's pretty strict. And so he grabs Paul and Silas, he chains them up, and puts them in the deepest, darkest hole of that prison. It says that he, um, he secured their feet in the stocks. So they, they're all twisted up now, chained up in a weird position to make you uncomfortable. And what is Paul and Silas doing? They're singing. 
They're singing worship songs. They are celebrating. And the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a violent earthquake and the foundations of the jail were shaken and immediately all the doors opened and everyone's chains came loose. When the jailer woke up and saw the doors of the prison standing open, he drew his sword and was going to kill himself since he thought the prisoners had escaped. That's a man that's committed to duty, isn't it? He's like, I'm about to get executed by my own people. I better just save face by killing myself. But Paul called out in a loud voice, Don't harm yourself because we are all here. Imagine the power of keeping all the prisoners in jail when the doors are open and the chains have fallen off. I mean, you and I probably would think, Oh, that's my opportunity. I'm out. Right? God did that. I'm out of here. But they stayed. The jailer called for lights rushed in and fell down, trembling before Paul and Silas. He escorted them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him along with everyone in his house. He took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds. Right away, he and all his family were baptized. He brought them into his house, set a meal before them, and rejoice because he had come to believe in God with his entire household. So Paul's not a, a stranger to prison. And the jailer, sitting in the congregation at Philippi, hearing this letter read to them, is probably smiling because he knows what it takes to be converted. Do you have a divine perspective of your circumstances? Are you so wrapped up in the minutiae of your life, the small things? Is, is everything in life right here before your face? Or do you have a divine perspective? I mean, imagine Paul and Silas, the, 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 the things fall off. Man, they could have split. They could have ran away. But instead, their divine perspective was, how can I reach people for the gospel? How can I reach people for this Jesus Christ? How easy is it to complain when things don't go the way that we liked? Paul and Silas in prison, wrapped up in these stocks in uncomfortable positions for hours. Could you imagine Silas turning to Paul and be like, well, we're in trouble again, wrapped up in this jail. How are we going to get out of this one? And start complaining. Like, well, they didn't. the jailer did not have to tie us up this hard. He didn't have to be this harsh. But instead, they sing. You know, we look at Christ's death on the cross as we're approaching Easter. It looked like a major failure, didn't it? That the Son of God placed on a cross and died. Looks like a major failure until the resurrection. But it was just the start of the grand reversal. And here's the other thing. If we have a divine perspective, which means we don't really know all the reasons why we are suffering the way that we do. We don't know everything about our circumstances. Could you have the same mindset as Paul, that you are forging new territory for the gospel in your suffering? What would it look like in your family if you were able to handle suffering like Paul with joy? What would it look like in the city of Sierra Vista? How would your medical issues set an example? When my dad was dying of cancer, he... Um, he was in a lot of pain. He was, he was struggling, and he was hanging on there for, for months. Many of you actually went up and visited him 
when he was dying. And he even couldn't take bowel movements by himself. He needed someone to help him. And he suffered in such a way that I look at that and I wonder how. How can you suffer? He wasn't jumping up and down with joy because his body was so weak and, and, and destroyed by the cancer. But he was happy. He was happy when a bowel movement happened. He was happy just to be there. And he would talk to me. He would pray. He would sing hymns. That was an example of him suffering and dying that I am never going to be able to erase from my mind. So I don't know what your suffering is. I don't know what you are experiencing right now. It could be financial difficulties. It could be medical. It could be anything. But if there is anyone around you watching how you suffer, maybe you're setting the example for Jesus Christ. Because that's what my dad did. He set the example of what it's like to be a Christian and suffer and then die. You might be thinking, well, circumstances are one thing. But when someone gossips about me or makes fun of me, that's something else. That's a different situation. In fact, I was talking to the uh, Awana youth the other day. And I asked them this question. I said, when you were bullied, what do you do? Shouldn't you turn the other cheek? And this one kid goes like this. Well, there are going to be a lot of fights. Right? That's our tendency. Our tendency is to fight back when someone says something harsh about us or makes fun of us. But that's not Paul's. In fact, we see that Paul, because of Paul's critics, Christ is preached. Look at verse 15 with me. He says, to be sure, some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. So he's being criticized, and he says it's a means of him glorifying God. And in fact, he's highlighting a little bit about division in the church of Rome. There's, a, there's some conflict in the church of Rome that doesn't seem very pleasant. But what is this rivalry and envy? Well, Paul, first off, is exposing exposing the habits of some. So like he said, the brothers started to proclaim Christ more boldly, but even some of those were doing it with false motives. In fact, I think some of them were probably saying things like, well, Paul's in prison. God must not love him. And saying, well, Christ really loves me. You should listen to me. Don't listen to that man, Paul. And there's a rivalry going on. And he says, it's God's judgment on Paul to be in prison. I think this is a really helpful thing for us to pay attention to. We need to be very careful when we look at the providence of God, the things that happen, and then try to read his will into them. Even the disciples, as they were walking along with Jesus and they saw the blind man or the, the, the crippled man, and they said, well, who sinned, him or his parents? And what did Jesus say? That's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. He said, he is crippled in order for me to heal him and show my glory. We have to be careful when we say, oh, that person's suffering because God is judging them. Because that may not be what's happening. And then in verse 16, we see that these others, these other people, preach out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. So Paul has highlighted now that we have those who are preaching out of rivalry and envy in order to try to make his... his position a lot more difficult, but then he's also saying that these other people are preaching with the right motivations. In fact, he's saying that my imprisonment is an occasion 
for an attitude check to check the hearts of other people. Isn't that so true? When my children come running to me and want to tattle on the other one, that's an occasion for me to check their heart. What's wrong with his heart? Well, he's delighting in getting his, his sibling in trouble. Or perhaps maybe there's a, a pastor in the area who suffers and you j- rejoice a little bit. That's a problem. Or maybe there's a, a, a rival in your workplace and they, they struggle and they make a big mistake and they get called out. And your, your heart kind of jumps a little bit. You're like, ha, got him. God really got him that time. That's not goodwill. That's not for the right attitudes. And so we have the end of the matter in 18 through 19. He says, what does it matter? Only that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice. Yes, I will continue to rejoice. Paul said that he was born for this task. He said, God chose me to do this, to share the gospel. This single-mindedness of his was like, no matter where I go, I am a pioneer, I am a, a scout, I am a path blazer for the gospel. And now he was not minutia, uh, privy to the minutia of his life. God did not say, all right, Paul, these are the things that are going to happen to you. You're going to get shipwrecked, but I'm going to save you. You're going to get a, a, a venomous snake is going to bite you. And you're going to get rocks thrown at you. In fact, so much so that we think you're going to be dead. And then um, you're going to go to prison and suffer for a while. And then eventually you're going to die. No, he didn't give him all those details. But Paul says it doesn't matter. I am here for this purpose of the gospel. What is this gospel that I have to, 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 to respond to? And so what Paul does is daily he is responding to his purpose. I, I, I think that Paul probably woke up in the morning and was laying on his bed, as some of you and I do when we hit our snooze button, and say, God, what do you have in store for me today? And, and you and I probably are like, oh, man, not another day with changing poopy diapers, or not another day of dealing with all the army's baloney, right? We get up and we start kind of grumbling our way to the bathroom and get ourselves, throw some water on our face. But I think Paul wakes up and says, how is Christ going to be proclaimed in my life today? How can I rejoice in the good news of Jesus Christ? How can I suffer for the gospel? He responds with joy in verse 18. He says, it doesn't matter if these people preach with false motives or true motives. Jesus Christ's name is going to be spread. These people are going to know who Jesus is. And then we have this confusing word in, in verse 19. He says, because I know this will lead to my salvation through your prayers and help me and help from the spirit of Jesus Christ. What is he saying there? Is he saying that he's not saved, that he has to wait for salvation because somebody has to pray for him? Or could he be talking about physical salvation, deliverance, deliverance from the situation where he'll be able to, to share the gospel with others? I think we could really take a, a cue from him and look at Job 13. And in Job 13, verses 13 through 18, just listen to it. It says, be quiet and I will speak. Whatever comes, happens to, whatever comes, let whatever comes happen to me. I will put myself at risk and take my life in my own hands. Even if he kills me, I will hope in him. I will still defend my ways before him. Yes, this will result in my deliverance 
for no godless person can appear before him. Pay close attention to my words. Let my declaration ring in your ears. Now then, I have prepared my case. I know that I am right. Job is talking about standing before God. And Paul knows that he is made right in front of God, not because of his own works, because of his own efforts, but because of Jesus Christ. He said, it's no problem for me to go to prison. It's no problem for me to die. Because he says later on, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. What a, what a difficult person Paul must be to corral. Imagine being the Romans and say, all right, Paul, we're going to throw you in prison. He's like, okay, to live is Christ. They're like, okay, we're going to execute you. To die is gain. I mean, imagine how frustrating that would be to deal with someone like that. So not too long ago, we had a major project on our walkway. Well, and I say we, I really mean Barney and Joe did all the work. But when I say we, we had a major project. And they removed some of the, um, the wood that was covering up that looked like there was some rotting going on. And they removed it. And what did they discover underneath? A lot more rotting. In fact, it was only hanging on by a thread in some places. And so what they had to do is they had to remove a ton of wood. And they initially thought, oh, this would be a simple task. We just remove this, slap on a new board, and things would go well. But when they opened it up, they removed that facade. There was a lot of rotting underneath. And this is what criticism, this is what suffering does to us. It pulls back the facade of our hearts. And we look in and see how rotten we are. When someone says something harsh and probably undeserved or maybe deserved about us, how do we respond? Do we respond with the rot inside of us? Or do we respond like Paul? How do you respond when your heart is exposed to the light? So suffering does several things, doesn't it? It, it reveals what our heart situation is. It tells us, what is our motivation? And we ask the question, how, does, how can I handle this situation in a godlike way, in a godly way, a way that God has asked us to do? And the, thir the third thing we see from Paul is that because of Paul's conviction, Christ was magnified. Paul's single-minded goal, the fact that he was swallowed up in the will of another. He was swallowed up in doing Christ's work. He says this in verse 20, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's a pretty courageous statement. Whether I live or die, I know that God, that Christ, will be honored. Where does a Christian put their hope? Where does Paul place his hope? Well, I think he gives us some, some hints here in Romans 9. So let's just pop over to Romans 9. And if you, you want, you can stay where you are. But in Romans 9, I almost lost my place. Romans 9, starting in verse 33. He quotes the Old Testament. Now remember, Paul is a man of Scripture. God's Word is truth to him. Every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is his daily bread. And everything that he has written is true. 
And he says this, As it is written, Look, I am putting a stone in Zion to stumble over and a rock to trip over. And the one who believes on him will not be put to shame. That's where Paul finds his hope. He he puts his hope in the things that's rejected by man. And then again in Romans 10, 11, he says, For the scripture says, Everyone who believes on him will not be put to shame. Not be put to shame. Now, is he talking about worldly shame? I mean, because Christians have died some pretty gruesome deaths, haven't they, over the years? We would say that, that many Christians are foolish for how they have died. William Tyndale was, was burnt, and then his ashes were dumped in the river so that no one could bury him. You have someone like John Huss, who was burnt alive at the stake at, after being told he needed to recant of his position that the Bible should be written in the language of the common people. And they burnt him, and he said, in a hundred years, God will raise up a swan, and you will have to listen to him. And a hundred years later, Martin Luther arrived on the scene, and God converted him using those Roman passages, Roman 10, 6, converted him and saw that righteousness is through faith alone, not through our actions. And so Paul says that the one who trusts in Christ will not be ashamed in the end. Paul's life and his whole course of his life was pointed to this confession. Remember how Paul started out. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was was committed to the work of the, the Hebrew Bible. He was going to make sure that this Christian Christian sect was destroyed. And so he pulled people out. In fact, He was there when Stephen was stoned to death, and he approved of the stoning. In many ways, Paul was a murderer. He was a felon of the highest sorts. Yet, God arrested his movement, and he gave him a lot more trials in life. He said, this upcoming trial is an opportunity for me to continue to speak with courage about Jesus Christ. So as he was going to approach Caesar's stand and he had to make a defense for the gospel he walked up there and he had courage to say that Jesus Christ is the only way I mean how hard would it have been for Paul to just kind of soften soften the gospel a little bit right because the truth is a little bit harsh can you imagine looking at the the emperor of the universe at that time the emperor of the world and say to that man there's only one way to heaven and you are not God Jesus is Lord. Imagine saying that to that guy who believes that he is a deity. I mean, he could have been like, well, you know, I'm not here to judge there, Caesar, but uh, there's this guy who's kind of like God, but he's Jesus, and uh, you could be saved, but it's it's okay if you don't want to. I'm not judging you. I don't want to change your lifestyle. I don't want you to, to be so committed to this man, but if you wanted to, There's this Jesus. Paul could have done that. Instead, what does he say? Repent and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what he's telling everybody. He doesn't change his message. Now he does it more culturally appropriate, right? He says, hey, you Athenians, you you love gods. I see all your idols. Let me tell you about the God that you don't know. Let me tell you about that. How many of you are scared 
to call your friends to repentance? How many of you are scared to ask your, tell your mom that she needs to repent of her idolatry? Now, you do it in a loving and winsome way, of course, but don't water down the gospel. Don't say, I, I saw an interview on TV between two men, one pastor who was faithful and one man who's more of a motivational speaker but calls himself a pastor, and they were sitting there, there was an interview, and the guy said, well, what do you tell Muslims about, about this Jesus if it's an ex exclusive way to salvation? There's only one way, not through your own works. But the Muslims, they believe in God, don't they? And the guy said, well, you know, I'm not here to judge, but you know, like, well, and he was on the spot. He didn't know how to answer that. And the other one says, well, they need to repent and believe in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. That's what they need to do. Who would you rather follow? Well, you know, or would you rather follow the one that says, my eager expectation and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now, as always, with all courage, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. To live is Christ, to die is gain. I wonder if you could say that like Paul. When your struggles come. You know, many of us as Christians need to recognize that we are telescopes. We are telescopes in the sense that we are to magnify something that is big and great. How many people spend time thinking about how big a star actually is? When we look out into the sky, the star looks really tiny, doesn't it? But with a magnoscope, sorry, telescope, with a telescope, you take the telescope and you look at that star and it magnifies it to a, to a bigger size. And you notice how big it is. For many people living in this world, God is a small blip on their radar. God is a very small star far away and does not important to them. But we as Christians need to point to God and say, listen, listen. He created the heavens and the earth. He has sole rule over this planet. No one else does. Jonathan Edwards said that he wished he could have eternity tattooed to his eyeballs. Imagine having a word tattooed to your eyeballs. Eternity. Why would he want to think about eternity every time he looked at something? This is, a, this is, this is to protect you. Imagine you as a man, and you are walking down the aisle, you're at Walmart, you've bought your goodies, you have all your kids, and they've asked for like 100 things that they've dropped in your, your basket, and you're about to cross the, the no-no aisle is what I call it, right? Where they have magazines there with half-naked women. For some reason, they want to display it at my, my son's level. And I begin to walk through there, and my eyes turn, and I look at this woman. If I had eternity stamped on my eyeballs, how much would I really want to look at that fleeting, fleeting trollop, right? How much would I want to look at something that will, that will go away in the blink of an eye? Or should I think about eternity? That I'm going to stand before God and I want to say, I will not be ashamed about anything because of Jesus Christ. That's what this eternity, when we think about eternity, or perhaps when we get into an argument with our spouse, you are living with that woman for eternity. You will have her as your sister in Christ in heaven. 
Do you really think that an argument over who does the dishes is that important? I mean, come on. What are you holding on to that really should be abandoned in light of eternity? I saw a pastor once, he dragged this really long rope out of the, and he, and he just kept pulling it and kept pulling it. And there was like about this much, and he had a little, little flag hanging off of it. He said, this is your life on this planet. And then he says, then we have eternity. And he just kept pulling the rope and pulling the rope. He's like, that's how long eternity is. Imagine back to the days when you were in high school and you had a crush on a girl. And when she refused to check yes on the yes or no box that you gave, she maybe put a maybe in there or she just wrote her own um, area and said, no way, never going to happen. Don't write to me again. Right. And you were devastated. How many of you remember that girl's name? Now, 20 years later, 30 years later, right? It's fleeting, but it was a big deal at the time. So stamp eternity on your eyeballs. A Christian is not someone who occasionally does Christian things, but whose every breath pants after God. Do you have that passion? Can you imagine if the whole of our whole congregation were hungry for God continually. Imagine what God would do with us. Will Christ be honored in your life? You know, we have the assurance of salvation, but how many of you have gotten complacent in your faith? If you've gotten complacent over these last weeks, these last months, maybe you've just really gone into some kind of cycle where you're just depressed about everything. I want you to commit your week to trusting Christ no matter what your circumstances. Can you do that with me this week? Can you commit this week to live as someone whose will is swallowed up in another? Can you live like Paul this week? Just one week. That's what I'm asking you. Now, some of you are going to say, well, I can't even live one day. That's why we are in progress, right? We ask Christ to work in our hearts. Let's go ahead and close in prayer. Almighty Lord, we, we look at Paul and the faith that you have given him. We look at Paul and his circumstances, the way that he suffered, the way he experienced great pain, the way that he was mocked, abused, and treated. And then we look and say, that was nothing compared to what happened to Christ. Because Paul lived like Christ. He was not perfect, neither are we perfect. Father, forgive us from our failings. Forgive us for our weaknesses. Lord, as many people contemplate their weak, I pray that you would give them an extra dose of a desire for you, that they would be so hungry for you that, that every word that proceeds from your mouth would be devoured, that they would look at the word of God with new light and see the freshness that it provides to every day. Lord, when they, when they suffer, Father, because we know that we will all suffer, we will all experience pain and trials and suffering, Lord, that I pray that they would look to you immediately in those circumstances, that they would not look to pop psychology and the five ways to make yourself feel happier about your bad situation, but that they would be able to say to live is Christ, but to die is gain. Father, I pray that you would give our people a boldness, a courage, 
to live for you in all circumstances. They would mend their relationships. They would not be cowardly in their actions. They would not isolate and hide from dealing with the difficulties of living with other people. Lord, I pray that you would sanctify for yourself this people for you. God, as, as I pray for them, I also pray for me because I fall more times than I succeed. And I pray for your mercy and your grace on me and that you would also sanctify me in your truth, that you would make me more holy, that I could proclaim your word in such a way that others would be hungry for your word. God, thank you for this time of fellowship, this time of worship that we were able to have this week. Lord, there are countries where this is not allowed and that there's a risk of someone coming in and killing the whole congregation. Lord, help us to be bold in our comfort. And all these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.